Okay, people, uh, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 2. So uh, listen to it for what God has to say to us. Well, perhaps I'll uh, give you the last verse of, verse of chapter 1, um, which is actually the, uh, the way that Hebrew divides up chapters is sometimes different from the way the English does. Um, and the last verse of chapter 1 in the English translations is the first verse of chapter 2 in um, printed Hebrew Bibles. But Yahweh provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to Yahweh out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, Yahweh my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I avowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to the fish. And it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. Thoughts that provokes? Things that says to you? Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how your version said forsake their true loyalty. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, because um, that's, forsake their true loyalty means us giving up having the right attitude to God, whereas that, your translation is um, risking God uh, giving up a positive attitude towards us, both of which are, are true, but yeah, that's an interesting difference, yeah, thanks. Who says it in the Greek? I mean Hebrew, sorry. Uh, well, presumably it's ambiguous, otherwise... Two extremely intelligent translators wouldn't have disagreed. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, you can read it either way. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard before that Yahweh provided the fish. I right. Just, I just hadn't heard that. Before. Right. Um, is there, there's this capsule that when you hit bottom, you get the chance of getting. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Despise the humble heart. heart. Right. Mm. And even more encouraging that God doesn't despise the proud heart and the person who's had a disaster happen to them. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, lots of the actual phrases. I mean, I, when I read it, I noticed all your waves and your billows passed over me, which is uh, exact phrase from Psalm 42. Yeah. And Jonah knows how to, at least Jonah gets some things right, you see. He knows how to pray. Or rather, in this case, how to give thanks, how to give praise, yeah. Now, before... Go on. Well, I never noticed that uh, the sailors that threw them overboard, you know, they made sacrifices and vows, and at the same, at the same time, this kind of ends the same exact way. He makes sacrifices and vows. Right. Yeah. at the same time, while they're going to the shore, he's using the bell to take them to... Right, yeah. But but there's but his vow. The, the extraordinary thing about this psalm is, if you um, the, the way we tend to assume that Jonah uh, would be would be praying in the fish, he'd be saying there are one or two things. One, what, there are two things he ought to be saying, as it were. One is sorry, 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 <laughs> and the other is help, 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 help. But he's not saying either of those. He's saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, in other words, the, the fish is not his problem, it's his solution, as, as you implied. That uh, he, He's giving thanks. Sorry? Oh, thanks. Uh, uh, the, um, the fish is a solution, not his problem. Let's try that. How's that? Somebody always ties it, try, turns it down in between. Uh, somebody with a loud voice turns it down in between classes. Yeah, the um, he, he's the, the 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 he's 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 when when um, when when I talk about psalms, I talk about two stages in answers to prayer. There's this, oh, I did with the Hannah when we looked at the Hannah story. The stage one, which is when God said He's going to rescue you, and the stage two, when God has actually done it. So you give thanks with relation to the first, then you give thanks again with relation to the second. Now Jonah is in a kind of stage one, stage two, but it's a kind of slightly different one. <laughs> Because um, it's better to be inside the fish than to be in the water, but it will be better at the end when he's on the land. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, roughly the same distance as he's got before. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and it turns out a long way to go in relation to God. Uh, I mean, he talks here. You think, oh, problem solved. Then when you read the rest of the story, it turns out probably not quite so solved. Yeah, he's got a long way to go. Yeah. Mm. I think it's ironic that the last thing he says before he's pursued is deliverance belongs to the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> deliverance belongs to the Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the book's full of irony like that. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Right down there is where where he was at the as it were at the bottom of the sea, and therefore kind of with the uh, torrents of Sheol overflowing him. Uh, but right up there, um, Yahweh can hear his prayer and he can give praise. Yeah. Uh, I can't actually think of examples. There's somebody in there posting 
in relation to Jesus's three nights, three days and nights, roughly, uh, between uh, Friday and Sunday, um, said three days is all over the um, Old Testament, though, isn't it? Oh, Hosea, there's a neat one in Hosea, um, which maybe Paul quotes. Uh, where is it? I think, I think that probably, yeah, Hosea chapter 6, which I think Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians or something. Come, let's return to the Lord. After, do, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will rise us up when we may live before him. Um, but I think probably, I don't think it's all that um, prominent in Jewish culture. I think that's uh, probably a product of Christians making links between Jesus' death and resurrection and Jonah and Hosea. I don't think there are that many actually apart from that. Okay, let's sing Amazing Grace. <coughs> Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed Through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Gracious God, we thank you for that grace that reaches out to us um, as pe when, when we are humble and we cast ourselves upon you. We thank you also for that grace that reaches, up, reaches out to, to us when we're not humble, uh, but when it is the case that dangers and toils and snares uh, threaten to drown us. And we ask again that as we study the scriptures tonight, we may see some more of the nature of that grace of yours be, and be grasped by it some more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while I'm waiting for this to work, um, I will tell you that uh, Jim, the TA, uh, after, straight after the class, 
is going to leap into his car and start driving to the East Coast. At the break? Well, I've got it in until the second half then. Is it okay? I think we might have to have a discussion about that. Uh, but that, therefore, is all the more reason why we should say, have you done any grading yet? Why we should say thank you for the grading. Well, some of you could say thank you for the grading. Some of you probably wouldn't. Oh, that's happy. That, 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 that and I'm going to pray for him. Gracious God, I thank you for this servant of yours. I thank you for this new uh, opportunity, this new stage in life that's opening up now. And I pray that you'll continue the process of preparing him for the ministry that he's got for you in the future. Pray for a safe uh, journey across the country and a good new beginning uh, when, when they've completed their move. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, Jonah. Somebody said it was the best homework that they, I mean, the homework they'd most enjoyed. That was cool, I thought. <laughs> um, it's uh, worth um, uh, another look, maybe, at the, uh, uh, the geography. Um, sorry, this is the Babylonian uh, Empire, because somehow I, didn't, I got two maps of the Babylonian Empire and none of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, but, uh, as I said last week, it doesn't make a great deal of difference because uh, they're occupying the same sort of area, but there's Nineveh at the top of the Fertile Crescent there. Um, uh, so when the Assyrians are in charge, uh, then it's from there that they're ruling roughly that um, uh, light blue area. Um, and uh, it's, there's a certain appropriateness in thinking about Jonah and Isaiah 1 to 39 at the same time. Uh, because the background of that first part of Isaiah uh, is the uh, threat uh, and then the, the reality uh, of Assyrian domination um, over first over Ephraim and Samaria and then over Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, but you do get two different sorts of um, attitudes, insights uh, in relation to God's attitude to uh, Nineveh and to Assyria um, in the two books. Uh, because in, uh, somebody commented in their posting that um, really Isaiah was rather hard um, on Assyria. No, it was rather hard on Babylon compared with Assyria in the chapters you read for today. Uh, partly Isaiah can do that because he's been pretty hard on Assyria for the first 12 chapters uh, about how uh, they are going to be punished. Um, so uh, I, the book of Isaiah is hard on Assyria, and thus uh, you can see then the background to the way, to the way that uh, Jonah uh, talked about Assyria. If um, the kind of attitude that, that Isaiah takes is the kind of attitude that Judeans are encouraged to take towards Assyria, um, then the uh, attitude that Jonah is talking about uh, makes for quite a contrast with that as one of the things that Jonah is doing is encouraging people to envisage the possibility that God has this positive attitude towards Assyria. Which, of course, Isaiah 19, which several of you asked questions about, also um, talks about, where, Isaiah, where, where it talks about the, uh, the road between, a road between Assyria and Egypt and, uh, and Egypt and Israel in between them, and there being some unity in the worship of Yahweh between these uh, great empires on either side uh, of Judah um, and Judah itself in the middle. Several people expressed surprise that, if you like, that Isaiah was so universalist. Um, they thought, I think, that God did, wasn't interested in anybody apart from Israel uh, until Jesus came. 
That would have been weird. I mean, what, what would God have been... I mean, okay, we'll talk about God changing his mind, but that would be a drastic change of mind, wouldn't it? If God wasn't interested in the world before Jesus and then suddenly thought, oh, perhaps I would be interested in the world as well. <laughs> but actually, from the very beginning, God is interested in the whole world. Um, and although the story then focuses more on Israel, because Israel is God's means of reaching the world, uh, the God of Israel is concerned about the whole world. So that when God calls Abraham... God calls Abraham in order that all the world may pray to be blessed, he says, as you are blessed, that you may be um, an illustration of what it means to be my people, not because you do anything, but because of what I do for you. And all the world will then want to the same thing. So that concern of God's for the whole world goes back to the very beginning of the story um, and, and pops up through the story uh, from time to time with frequency, uh, even though at the same time the immediate focus of the story is often on Israel because that's the way whereby God is going to reach the world. Was, was Israel supposed to, like, or to what extent did Israel know that themselves? Well, they, they, well, they knew it, in, as it were, whether they read Genesis or they read the Psalms or they read Isaiah or they read Jonah or wherever they read, not wherever, but uh, lots and lots of places where they read, they would find God's concern for the world. Okay. Now, they didn't have to go and evangelize the world because that wasn't the way that God was going to do it. Um, but but they, um, uh, their, their scriptures made very clear to them uh, that, that God was going to be acknowledged by the world and that God cared about the world. So I have a question. Um, Paul talks about, I think, in Ephesians, like the mystery yeah. that the Gentiles basically would... Uh, maybe talking about like the grafting of the tree. Like you got Ephesians and Romans mixed up, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> but I can, uh, the, the question's easier to answer than for Romans, so let's stick with Romans. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Mm. So, so he was talking about the, the, that's the mystery that's yeah. being revealed. Mm. Like, so I get the idea that Paul didn't know that or something. Well, the mystery that's being revealed in Romans, because uh, I think I know the answer to that one, but I'll, I'll glance at Ephesians while I'm talking to you about Romans, because <laughs> I'm getting very good at multitasking. Um, <laughs> But the, the mystery in Romans, certainly, is the mystery of how God will do that. That is, that the extraordinary fact that it was the uh, Jewish people not acknowledging their Messiah that was the means of the gospel going to the Gentiles. That's the mystery in Romans. Um, so it's not the fact... I, I mean, Paul, in those very chapters, quotes from the uh, Old Testament from the, uh, in order to point out God's concern for all the world, that, that God's concern for all the world there's nothing new about God's concern for all the world, as it were, Paul is saying. What's what, the mystery, the, reveal, the revelation, concerns how God is going to implement that concern for the world. Um, Ephesians. Where does Ephesians talk about mystery? Well, if that's what it is, it's no problem, is it? Yeah, that could be wrong. I th I th maybe it's... Uh, let, let's um, work on the assumption for the moment that it's mystery in Romans is what you're talking about, and, and, and that's the answer to what the nature of that mystery is. And when you've Googled and found some other thing, we'll deal with that in a minute. Uh, page 88, Systematic Theology According to Jonah. Because <clears throat> I, 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 I mean, one of the bits of uh, delicious irony uh, in the book uh, is the, the beginning of chapter 4 when uh, Jonah is really annoyed 
that God is forgiving the Ninevites, letting them off, because he was really looking forward to the destruction of Nineveh. And he prays to Yahweh and says, Yahweh, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. I knew, I, I knew you'd go and do this. I knew you'd go and forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come here. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. How did he know? The answer is, it's um, a, a statement about God that keeps recurring in different forms. It is, if you like, the outline uh, of the Old Testament Scriptures' systematic theology of God. Um, and it goes back to Sinai. <clears throat> when Yahweh appears before Moses and says, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, and <clears throat> it's that that Moses appeals to uh, with chutzpah uh, in Numbers chapter 14 when um, Yahweh is threatening again to dispose of all the Israelites and Moses says, you can't do that because you describe yourself as Yahweh who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents on the children to the third and fourth generation. So, sorry, you can't destroy us, says Moses, except he doesn't say sorry. Um, and God, of course, says, oh yes, you're right. Um, within the prophets... Uh, Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. Even now, says Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, who relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? You can't kind of, um, you can't pres pres presume upon it. Um, but given who we know Yahweh is, well, it's, uh, there's a fair chance. Nehemiah. In this prayer in uh, in Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a review of the story uh, of Israel showing how it's inclined, to, how they've always been inclined to, to rebel. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Now, some people... Um, We've had it, I think, already in this, 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 this course. Um, I've kind of received the impression that God is acting in judgment every five minutes in the Old Testament. These guys are, evidently don't think so. Their understanding of God is shaped more by the way that that um, revelation at Sinai um, talks uh, in which the mercy of God is the dominant side to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yes. 
Straight question? Straight answer. Um, Psalm 87, Psalm 86. While you're thinking of the um, supplementary, I'll keep going. Oh, okay, that's right then. <laughs> um, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. That's the basis on which you pray. Psalm 103. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. Uh, 1458. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all, his compassions over all that he has made. Now, none of that, those aren't all exactly the same. There are other examples um, uh, elsewhere. They're not all exactly the same, but you can see how it's the the same idea, and at the back there, the same set of words that's recurring here. Um, so let's look at this set of words because they are key to the Old Testament systematic theology. Uh, the first thing about Yahweh is that Yahweh is gracious. Um, the word uh, for grace is the word chain, um, which is the Old Testament equivalent of the word charis in Greek. Um, it's when somebody shows a a positive attitude towards you uh, that you've got no reason to expect. There was no reason why they should have been gracious towards you. Uh, so that um, it's... Uh, a, the, an example I like is, uh, is the one when Esau... Uh, when J Jacob comes back uh, and has to face Esau and he's scared stiff of facing Esau because he swindled him, swindled him of his uh, inheritance. And he's amazed that he finds grace, finds favor with Esau. He didn't deserve it. No reason to expect it, but Esau shows it. Um, then there's compassion. Um, Yahweh is compassionate. It's uh, merciful is the um, is the word in the NRSV, but compassionate is um, is more more precisely what it's about. And the word for compassion is the word for the womb. Um, so it's uh, the kind of feeling that you have towards the children of your womb is the kind of attitude that Jonah knows that God has towards people. God has these motherly feelings uh, towards people. Uh, if you're a mother, instinctively you have compassion for your kids. God is slow of anger. Well, uh, yeah, God does, does, does get angry, um, but, uh, but only about once every hundred years, and uh, hold, is always holding back and postponing the time uh, when anger needs to be implemented as was the case over giving the Israelites the land of Canaan. Um, when uh, God said to Abraham, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait 400 years to have that land because um, I can't um, throw the Canaanites out when they don't deserve it. 400 years of slowness while they have to kind of wander about. Um, and I wonder whether that's why the second coming doesn't happen because, uh, as I think I may have said the other day, that, um, uh, that God uh, doesn't want to terminate the time when people have got the opportunity to respond to him. Yes, same thing. Yeah, it's, it's related. Ha <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. I don't think. I don't think you'd be able to do that. No, because he's made commitment about that. So uh, I, I don't think he could get away with himself. Uh, over that. <laughs> so, yeah. 
God is um, abounding in steadfast love, big in commitment, big in chesed. Um, commitment is uh, an attitude, a stance, uh, a set of actions you take towards somebody, again, when they don't deserve it, when maybe they forfeited it, when they've given up every um, right to any positiveness of attitude towards you, and you carry on uh, showing steadfast <coughs> love towards them. It's the equivalent of the, um, the Greek word agape. Exodus 34 adds that Yahweh keeps commitment for 25,000 years, which, well, that gives us quite a long time, uh, another 23,000, well, 22,500 from when Jonah lived, before, maybe, before the second coming has to happen. No, I'm not going to think about that, no. God is ready to relent from punishing. Inclined to relent about sending trouble. Uh, several people wanted me to talk about this notion of God um, changing his mind. Why does God, well, yeah, when does God do that? Does God really do it? Um, well, if God doesn't do it, the Bible is very careless about the number of times that it says God does do it. Uh, nearly always, when it talk, as in this example, when it talks about God relenting, uh, it does mean that uh, God makes a threat of punishment uh, but doesn't implement it. Um, this, the verb that's used here uh, is one that's it's an emotional kind of word. It's, uh, it's be sorry. Um, the other word for repent, which means to turn around, um, came back in chapter 3, verse 9. Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that, so that we don't perish. Um, that talk of God relenting uh, replaces the talk of forgiving wrongdoing and rebellion and failure, uh, and failure in Exodus. Uh, what you've got here, though, is Yahweh treating Nineveh the same way that Israel was treated at Mount Sinai. And that's, again, another way of saying that's what really gets Jonah. God is treating the nations the way that God treated Israel. That's not right. Jonah, as I put on the sheet, applies the theology of God's love to the nations, not just to Israel. Uh, a, a, a kind of reverse account of that in talking about Nineveh um, comes in Nahum, where Nahum more or less begins in talking about Nineveh by saying, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and rages against his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. In other words, when he does decide to be angry, just watch it. Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. Nahum thus reminds us, as the two sides to that statement in, uh, in Exodus do, that there are these two sides to God's character. Um, but uh, uh, Jonah um, and Isaiah and Exodus um, imply that being merciful and faithful and gracious is what's central to Yahweh's nature. Um, Isaiah makes that point. Chapter 28, verse 21. When Isaiah is talking about God acting in judgment uh, on, the Jude, on the people of Judah, Yahweh will rise up to do his deed strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. In other words, God is going to do something which seems alien to who God really is, to who God, to, alien to, who, to God's central nature. God's central nature is grace and compassion and commitment. But God can summon up the capacity for anger when, when, when anger is needed. 
Um, that's uh, implied by the way the Exodus passage talks, where it talks about God's faithfulness and grace and compassion, but then goes and says, but God doesn't um, let the guilty off. Um, God's got, God has to be moral um, as, as well as merciful. But, but merciful is God's um, central characteristic in the way that the Old Testament sees it. It's expressed very neatly in Lamentations. God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Have you ever thought of God doing something unwillingly? That's weird. Literally, it's God, does not, God doesn't do it from the heart. God does not afflict or grieve anyone from the heart. It doesn't come from, from the center of God's being. God can summon up from the edges of God's being the capacity to do that, but it doesn't come from God's heart. Mm-hmm. Why does he still bring about those threats, or why does he even, like, if he knows that somebody's not going to repent, then why does he still, I guess I'm just kind of confused at, like, why he would go ahead and threat to do something, and then not do it, and then on the other times, like, knowingly, knowing that they wouldn't repent, like, still do it as well. You didn't express that very very coherently, did you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, God, I, I'd say in, in those examples, uh, the, the, there, are, there are a number of passages in the, prof, passage in the prophets that indicate, um, let, let's go back to Isaiah 5 that we looked at last time. Um, God expected justice but saw bloodshed. God looked for or expected righteousness but heard a cry. God expected, the, the person who dug this, this vineyard expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Yield, expected it to yield decent grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now this parable only makes sense on the assumption that the vine dresser and then God um, didn't know what was going to happen and in fact what happened was different from what they thought was going to happen. Okay, God's supposed to be omniscient. Uh, Though I don't think, I think it's very hard to find anywhere in the Bible where it says that God is omniscient. It's much, much easier to find passages that indicate that God doesn't know things than to find passages that that indicate that God does does know things. Um, For the sake of argument, let's assume that God, as I believe to be the case, uh, that God can know everything. Uh, but the implication of a passage like that Isaiah one, or lots of other passages that to- other passages that talk in those terms, is that God doesn't always choose to know everything. Um, maybe the reason is that God wants to live in real relationship with people, and if you know everything before people are going to do it, it all becomes phony. But that's pure speculation on my part. The data. As you know, I'm just a simple Bible-believing Christian feminist. I simply believe what the Bible says. If the Bible says God doesn't know things, then I accept that God doesn't know things. Um, And I don't let philosophical theology that says God knows everything dictate um, 
d determine what I believe when the Bible says the opposite. Our problem a lot of the time is that things that we believe are not things that the Bible says, they're things that we think must be true somehow. Um, and the reason why you have the Bible is to tell you things that are true that you would never have guessed were true. Um, and uh, God not knowing things is one of the things that the Bible tells you that you wouldn't have thought was true, but it looks as if it is true. And actually, if I'm right about the reason, it's kind of good news. Because God, de God decides, not, in order to live in real relationship, um, God decides not to know things. Um, and, uh, and thus, when God issues warnings, promises, uh, works with expectations, it's, it's all real. It's not phony, to judge from the way that the, that the Bible talks. Um, several people want to know uh, what I think about whether Jonah is fiction. Um, I can't think why you would want to know that. Um, but uh, I'll tell you that my working assumption is that this is a story, uh, a fictional kind of story, um, rather than a factual story. Maybe it's got a factual basis somewhere, like, like uh, lots of stories uh, do have other stories in the Bible where it's a kind of mixture of fact and fiction. And certainly it's the case that Jonah was a real person. Um, in the books of Kings, you get um, the, uh, uh, the basic kind of datum uh, about Jonah's uh, ministry uh, as, as a prophet bringing the word of God to, uh, to Ephraim. So Jonah was a guy who existed, and he was a, a guy who brought positive, a positive message for Israel, and that's maybe why he was made the person through who, about whom this story is told. Because he's the kind of guy who, to judge from the account of him in Kings, would have, would have reacted the, the way that he does in this story. Maybe he did actually get sent off to Nineveh and went in the opposite direction. Um, I don't know. But, but you, don't, you don't need that to be the case in order for the story to work. Um, how, how do you know whether a story is fictional, uh, is more fictional or more factual, more, fiction, more parabolic uh, or more historical? I was very struck um, reading a book about Mark's Gospel by a guy called um, Frank Kermode, K-E-R-M-O-D-E, -E, called The Genesis of Secrecy, in which he comments uh, in passing uh, in, in this book that telling the difference between uh, something which is historical and something which is fictional is, is, is the, about the most difficult thing you ever try to do in the process of interpretation. Now, he's, he doesn't mean... It's difficult. He's not talking about the difficulty of knowing whether when somebody is trying to write history, they accidentally make mistakes. That's a totally different question. This question is, is when you're reading this story, is it, is it, how do you tell whether this person is trying to tell you a factual story or trying to tell you a historical story? Because anybody who's trying to tell you a decent fictional story tries to make it as realistic as possible. So it's very difficult to tell. Um, when you look at Jesus' parables... Maybe you accept that Jesus' parables um, are uh, fact fictional rather than factual. Though once I said that in a class and I discovered that somebody didn't believe that and reckoned that all Jesus' parables had happened, so I got no answer then. Um, but probably most of you are prepared to accept that when Jesus said, for instance, there was a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that would belong to me. Um, and so the, uh, what we call the parable of the prodigal son unfolds. Maybe you're prepared to accept that that isn't a story that is about something that actually happened, but is a fictional story. Or the one that follows, Jesus said to the disciples, 
there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property, and so on. Or one that follows later on in that's um, Luke 16. Uh, another one that follows. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feared sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, in none of those does Jesus say, I'm about to tell you a parable. Nor does Luke say, Jesus told them, par told them a parable, saying, Jesus simply says, this happened. So how do you know it's a parable? How do you know it's fiction? And I think there are two things about it that, um, that might give you clues. One is that, it, that, that, that these stories of Jesus' um, are quite often funny uh, or, or ironic. Um, and the other is that they're quite often larger than life. Um, and uh, you can see those features uh, in those parables in Luke 15 and 16 and lots, of other, and lots of other parables. They quite often are funny or ironic and they're quite often larger than life. Um, and the Jonah story is both funny, uh, ironic, and larger than life. That doesn't prove it. It may have happened, but it's, it's like the parables in those respects. Um, of course, the mere fact that, it, that the story requires a miracle is not the reason why you reckon it was fictional. Uh, and you don't need any proof from um, uh, stories about sailors or anything that, that once it happened that a guy was swallowed by a whale and then regurgitated in order to make you believe it if the story is a factual story. If it's totally impossible from a scientific point of view, God can obviously make it happen. That, let's rule, rule that out. The question is, what kind of a story is it? And it reads to me more like a parabolic story uh, than like a historical story. Um, hello? Do you have any pastoral wisdom as coming from, I mean, for us as pastors and missionaries who are trying to, I mean, maybe we buy into this and we say that we, yes, we should be trying to instill in the next generation a fact, just a sense that, a different way of reading the Bible, such that it's not kind of taken as this big historical venture. Um, how do we do that in this culture that is just, I mean, I feel like in some... The answer is, the answer, is the, the answer I gave you the other day, which is, it's what I'm doing at the moment. I know nothing about how to do it except uh, what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, so, some people in this classroom buy it, some people don't. Uh, and the same, you'll find the same is true as, as, of, of, uh, of congregations. But there's nothing I know by way of answer that question apart from what I'm modeling. Has anybody got any other ideas? Because I'll have to use them in the future when I'm standing <laughs> at the front. But don't worry, don't worry about the fact that you won't succeed. I don't succeed. Um, the, 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 uh, the church has been failing for 100 or 200 years. So don't worry about failing. Failure is good. God knows a lot about failure. Um, mm-hmm. Now, my point about Luke 15 and 16 is that, no, that doesn't happen. Okay. You see? I, I chose my examples carefully. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, you're right, that sometimes happens, but in lots of examples, like, like all those parables in Luke 15 and 16, the narrator doesn't tell you that there are parables. So we somehow work that out, you see. 
and and um, and as I say, I think, uh, and I've offered you the, the clues that I can see uh, to why that is in terms of irony and humour uh, and things being larger than life. Um, why is there no conclusion to the book? One of the, one of the questions in the postings. Anybody got any ideas? Why is it uh, weird? Why does it end in such a weird way? Can anybody think of another book that ends in, in the Bible that ends in such a weird way? You're clever. Have I told you that before? <laughs> yeah. So why do Mark and Jonah? Are there any other examples? Those will do anyway. Why do they end in such a weird way? The lesson to be taught has already been taught. Calls for a reader's response. I mean, that's right. The lesson has been taught, but but the the book ends in an open way because um, when you close things off, you close things off. You let people off the hook. When you end when, when you end up with a question, then you've got to answer the question. Um, when you end up with the women not telling anybody because uh, they're afraid, then the question is, who's going to go and tell everybody then? I'm just wondering whether there are any parables that end with a question mark, with a question. I don't, I'm not sure, but that will be another neat um, comparison if there are. Um, well, let's have two or three minutes in which you can talk to each other about, um, well, you can talk to each other both about uh, <coughs> what you think about the history of fiction question, uh, but also about what you think is, somebody wanted me to say, what, what's the main point of the book? Um, and uh, in my opinion, there isn't one. Um, I gave you about eight or nine points, didn't I? Books don't have to have a main point. Um, a, a decent story, a decent movie, will have a number of things going on in it. Uh, and, and different people will appropriately perceive different aspects of the, of the Jonah story uh, in accordance with things that they need to hear. Though it probably means you'll miss, or rather, things they want to hear tend to be the thing that you'll miss the thing that you need to hear, that you ought to hear, and latch on to the things that you like. So maybe we ought to turn the question on its head somehow. Which do you think is the most irrelevant theme in Jonah? Because that's probably the one that you ought to take notice of. Well, talk to one another about um, the fiction history question and about what's the, what you think are, are interesting key points about, about the book. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Shh. Oh, that's better. Um, does that make anybody else want to say anything? Mm -hmm. uh, based on the earlier argument about the characteristics of a parable, does it include fantastic events or ironies? But I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I like the word fantastic, but anyway, go on. What was unbelievable or... No, larger than life. Larger than life, okay. Yeah. Oh, there are lots of boring stories in the Bible. <laughs> Aren't there? I mean, how, those, the historical ones, the, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah, the historical stories are boring. 
I mean, you know, you start reading through Kings and you go, don't you? (laughs) Of course, needless to say, I don't think they're boring. But I mean, you know, most of the Christians do. Great! (laughs) Well, now one of you, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, right. Yes, true, yeah. <laughs> mm, or maybe true, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, could be. I don't know, sorry. I don't know, sorry. Mm-hmm. No. That's, that's one of the things I, that, you know, all we got is the Bible. So there's, there's no indication of that now. Somebody asked, kind of, sort of related, somebody wondered how Jews understand Jonah. Um, and the answer with regard to how Jews understand anything is always the same as Christians. Um, in the sense that there's a wide variety of understandings amongst Christians, there's a wide variety of understandings amongst Jews. Um, you're going to find the same sort of questions, the same sort of attitudes. Obviously, Jews are not going to say... Jonah's three days in the whale anticipated Jesus' three days in the tomb. But apart from that, Jewish and Christian interpretation is pretty similar. But I thought I would um, uh, read, in order to prove that I'm wrong, uh, I'll read to you some bits uh, from this book about Jonah by um, Jonathan Maganay, who is the president of the Leo Beck College, the um, Rabbinical Training College in London, Rabbinic um, Seminary in London. The Zohar, well, that's got you to start with, hasn't it? Um, The Zohar is a collection of um, Jewish sort of mystical traditions, if you like. Speaks of Jonah as follows. In the story of Jonah, we see the whole of a man's experience in this world. Jonah descending into the ship is like a man's soul that descends into the world as it enters his body. Why is it called Jonah, troubled? Because as soon as it becomes a partner with the body in this world, it finds itself full of troubles. For man is in this world as in a ship that is crossing the great ocean and seems to be breaking up. And then Maganay comments, This troubled and and tormented soul on its brief journey through the world is a favoured image of the medieval Jewish thinkers. The image begins in the sayings of the fathers. The world is like a corridor to the world to come. Prepare yourself in the corridor so that you may enter the inner chamber. That's good, isn't it? The world is like a corridor to the world to come. Prepare yourself in the corridor so that you may enter the inner chamber. Uh, The Bible has a series of stories about the call of prophets to serve God, which often talk about hesitancy. For them, at least, the source of the call is not questioned. And for one of them, Abraham, the response seems to be immediate acquiescence. Yet for others, there is a moment of hesitancy, expressed in different ways. Moses has a whole series of objections. Who am I to rescue the children of Israel? Anyway, they'll never believe you sent me. Anyway, I can't speak adequately. In the end, he seems to become quite peevish. Oh, send whoever you want. Anyone, that is, but me. And yet the anger, and perhaps God's anger in reply, is only because he knows that he has swallowed the bait and accepted Jeremiah says he is too young. Isaiah finds him filthy himself impure. Amos probably complained that he was not professionally qualified. 
Yet in the end, they all had to go. Leon Roth expressed it well. It has become fashionable to talk of the relationship between God and man as that of a dialogue. That is as it may be. But it should at least be noted that the dialogue involved is not a tea table conversation. It is rather a call, even a calling to account. And it is curious to observe from the record how some of those called, called upon found in it terror and suffering, and how some, for varying reasons, tries to evade it. The prophet is not alone on his travels. Others are born along, and others are thus exposed to the danger he seems to think is merely his private concern. The sailors are characterized as people of remarkable sensitivity and generosity. When the storm threatens to destroy them, they pray to their respective gods. This is part of the irony, you see, of the story, that they know he's asleep, he's not praying, he's the Israelite, but he's not praying. The pagan sailors, they're praying. We may read the story inside out. How do we come to recognize that our journey is actually a flight? Perhaps in the damage we do to others on the way, if the realization ever penetrates to our awareness. A century ago, scholars still tried to identify the precise fish that swallowed Jonah. <laughs> Not a whale, but some sort of shark seems to be favored. Oh, thanks. Today, it is hard to discuss the remarkable creature as anything but a womb. Well, I found it quite easy to discuss the um, <laughs> remarkable creature as anything but a womb. Was Jonah's time in the fish one of those transforming experiences? Did he emerge with a new heightened consciousness or at least a greater insight into, into his situation and his nature? Conventional psychology would probably say yes. Surely such an experience, a regression to the womb, the dark night of the soul, sensory deprivation, must have done something to him. And yet there is a stubborn obliviousness about Jonah that is hearteningly consistent. True, he prays, but the, psalm, but the psalm he recites is remarkable for all that is left out. In its outrages, it says quite bluntly to God, you threw me in, you drew me out, with not a word about how this came about. You th uh, more sensitive is the play on Jonah's gradual physical descent, which is matched by a spiritual rise. Whereas at the beginning he says, I am driven out of your sight, yet still while I look at your holy temple, look to your holy temple. At the end, when he again speaks of God's holy temple, the word is, wording is quite different. When my soul was fainting within me, it was the Lord that I remembered, and my prayer reached out to you, to your holy temple. Not that I know of, but maybe, but I'm very ignorant. Sorry? Oh, Yom Kippur, thank you. That's interesting. What? what? Do you know why? Repentance, because yeah, nobody's beyond. Nobody's beyond. Oh, great! Yeah. Mm. Nineveh is saved because of God's patience. No less wondrous is His patience with His reluctant prophet. Oh, here it says, on the Jewish Day of Atonement, the Book of Jonah is read during the afternoon. Partly because of its reference to the repentance of the people of Nineveh 
and hence their lesson to us. And partly perhaps because its universal theme prepares us for our re-entry into the world as the end of the day approaches. Okay, that's Jonah. Um, Isaiah 13 to 39. Uh, let me remind you of the timeline. Let's turn back for a moment to page 55. Uh, there in the left-hand column are the foreign powers. Um, somebody asked who the superpowers were. And when I talk about the superpowers, I mean the ones at the bottom of the left-hand column, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, um, and, uh, and then Greece and Rome. Uh, I'm sorry? Uh, no, I wouldn't say... No, Egypt is a regional power rather than a superpower, I'd say, because I don't think... Well, I don't, I don't know that I know how far it's... Um, power extended into Africa. Um, but as far as its effect upon Israel was concerned, it was kind of more like a regional power. It was the dominant power, as far as Israel is concerned, it was the dominant power. Um, but I, it, it wasn't, I don't think, a, um, uh, a superpower in the way that uh, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome are. Maybe I'm influenced a bit by Daniel, because Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel tends to think um, in terms of the, of the Middle Eastern, the Mesopotamian superpowers like that. Um, so there are the foreign powers on the left-hand side uh, with some key dates. Uh, the uh, split into the two kingdoms, 970. The fall of Ephraim to Assyria, 722. The, f the final fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, 587. The fall of Persia to Babylon in 537. Um, there are the kings, in columns two and four are the kings of Ephraim and the kings of Judah. There are the prophets in the third column uh, with Jonah being just above Hosea and, and Amos there in the context of the uh, history of Ephraim. Um, and there's uh, Isaiah and Micah um, at the point when the Assyrians are destroying Ephraim uh, and so uh, with Isaiah in particular in the earlier part of his ministry with the Assyrians as a threat on Ephraim in the latter part of his ministry uh, they've become a much bigger threat to Judah which is why in these chapters uh, 28 following uh, the Judeans are seeking help from the Egyptians because of the threat that the Assyrians are to them. Um, now, on to page 76, where it says at the top, um, Isaiah 13 to 27. Um, I um, invited you to read pages 76 and 77. Uh, did I read in both? Yeah, that's right in connection with reading the chapters for today. So I won't work through them, but just make one or two comments uh, in the light of, the, um, of people's postings. Um, why is Babylon so prominent in this list? Anybody like to guess? Anybody know? 
Because later on, Babylon's the big problem. Um, now, I don't see any reason to reckon to. Uh, I don't see any reason to exclude Isaiah's having some oracles against Babylon. But it's weird uh, that Babylon is so prominent in this list of the nations because in Isaiah's own day, it wasn't that prominent. But um, a century, two centuries later, uh, a century or so later, it was the problem because it had taken over. Uh, from Assyria as the power in the Middle East. So what you get at least a hint of there is that the, even if the, these prophecies come from Isaiah, the way in which they have been ordered um, reflects the context of a century or two or so uh, later on when Babylon has become the big power. And maybe that uh, links with questions that once we've asked about well, what happened to these prophecies? How did they come together and things like that? How were they delivered? Uh, in chapters 1 to 12, you occasionally get pictures, and in chapter 20 here in the ones that we read, you occasionally get accounts of Isaiah exercising his ministry in Jerusalem, presumably in the environs of the temple. In the temple courts is where people gather, uh, where you play soccer and so on. Um, and so you can get an audience there. At least they play soccer there now. I don't know where, I don't actually have evidence they played soccer there in Isaiah's day. Uh, but in the temple court, as, and as in the Gospels, where people, where that's where Jesus does teaching, so that presumably is where the public place where Isaiah would deliver his, um, his messages. In one of the passages you read for last time in Isaiah chapter 8, it talks about Isaiah commissioning some of his words to be written down. Um, uh, and, um, but you could imagine that, uh, that uh, on other occasions others of his words would be written down or perhaps they were just passed on orally. But eventually um, somebody came to put them together and put them together into ordered fashion. So I suggested to you that chapters 1 to 12 have got a kind of structure about them. So there's a message in the individual um, prophecies, but there's also a message in the arrangement as a whole, in, in the section of Isaiah as a whole. And that's true about chapters 1 to 12, and it's true about 13 to 23, and it's true about 24 to 27. And then it's true at another level, uh, when they've been put together and you read them uh, one after each other. Uh, and as I say then, the, um, imply, the implication of the arrangement of 13 to 23 is that they have been put together in, the, in this form in that period when Babylon is the big power and Assyria can almost be ignored in 13 to 23 whereas in chapters 1 to 12 Assyria was very prominent reflecting the situation, uh, the political situation of Isaiah's own day. Um, somebody noted how weird it was that Jerusalem suddenly popped up in 22. Um, and I imagine that's the point. That is, it's a huge insult um, to include Jerusalem in this list of prophecies uh, about other peoples. It's saying, in effect, you're just one of the nations around. You behave like just one of the nations around. You'll get treated just the same way if you're not careful. Um, the Philistine, the passage about the Philistines at the end of 14 puzzled some people, um, and it seems that that... Um, uh, prophecy reflects the situation in which the the little pa the, the the little peoples around uh, were inclined to um, be acting in rebellion against the uh, Assyrians, um, and the Philistines, it seems, want to involve Judah in rebellion against the Assyrians in the same way um, as Syria and Ephraim had wanted to earlier on. 
Um, and what uh, Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah uh, at the end of chapter 14 uh, is, uh, don't be so stupid. Uh, you're going to find yourself in trouble by um, resisting the Assyrians. Uh, and yet, in this prophecy, as in quite a number of these others, uh, there's a, an element of hope for whoever is the nation that the prophet is declaring there's going to be trouble for. So here it's, what will, what will one answer the messengers of the nation? In other words, when the, on, when the envoys come from Philistia to try to persuade you to join, to make alliance with them, what are you going to say to them? Here's what to say to them. Yahweh has founded Zion, and the needy among his people will find refuge in her. And, and the implication of saying that is certainly we're going to find refuge with Yahweh and Zion, but actually you could as well. What's the point um, of all these declarations? That aspect of the political situation uh, is, is a pointer towards, towards the reason why Isaiah talks about these peoples. That is, these various peoples are, are a threat to Judah or a potential resource to Judah. Uh, and Judah needs to be persuaded about the right kind of attitude to have to them, which is neither to trust them nor to be afraid of them. Because if you're in a relationship with God, you don't have to be afraid of anybody, but also you oughtn't to be involved in trusting these people. You need to make Yahweh your trust. Um, and Yahweh, the one whom you revere. Uh, and, and so, as Isaiah works around uh, the nations uh, in the area, it's to attempt to get Judah to look at them the right way. One or two people asked, how, on what basis could Yahweh declare judgment upon these nations when they hadn't got the revelation uh, that Israel had got? The assumption that Isaiah makes, the assumption you'll find that Amos makes when you read Amos for next week, the assumption that Paul makes at the beginning of Romans, um, is, uh, is that people in general, the world, nations, individuals, don't need a special revelation from God in order to know what's right and wrong and to know uh, about God's being there. It, it's, we're hardwired that way. Uh, we can maybe do things that makes the wiring perish, um, which is kind of what Paul says at the beginning of, uh, of Romans. But the way in which we are wired is with an awareness uh, of who God is and with an awareness of what's right and wrong. So you don't need to be told that raping people is wrong or that um, atrocities are wrong um, uh, or that adultery is wrong or that stealing is wrong. You may often need to be reminded of that, which, the, which both the Torah and the New Testament do. Um, I happen to be reading this morning where it says in Romans 13, love is to be sincere. Well, hey, that's obvious. Nobody needs to be told that, do they? Well, yeah, you do, because you need to be reminded of these things. Most of the things that, ne that need to be said to us aren't things that we don't need anything new to be said to us. We need to talk, take seriously the things that we supposedly know already. So Isaiah assumes that these nations um, know the basic truths about what's right and wrong, and it's on that basis that um, God warns them about judgment. Yep. Sorry? 
Romans 1, 1 to 3. Um, so is it possible for a human being to get to a point where they're so hardened that their awareness of right and wrong is completely obliterated? Uh, I don't think I have an opinion about that. I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure the Bible tells, does, does the Bible tell me the answer to that? Well, I, I don't think the Bible tells me the answer to that question, does it? So I don't know the answer. Okay. <laughs> um, but of course, th we're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about nations. We have to keep pulling ourselves away from thinking about individuals because we're talking about nations here. Though you could ask the question, is it possible for a nation to have got so distorted um, that it's totally lost all that? But the Bible doesn't tell me that either. No. The, um, there, there's a link um, between that set of assumptions and the comment in chapter 24 uh, about breaking an everlasting covenant, I think. That is, there's an assumption that the whole world is in covenant relationship with God. Um, not the same kind of covenant relationship that Israel is in, or that you're in through Christ, but in a kind of covenant relationship that goes back in Old Testament terms to, the covenant, to God's covenant with Noah. Um, and so the, the world is under judgment because it has transgressed laws, violated statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, uh, ignored that relationship with God that it was put into. Uh, well, well, except that that, but they then kind of, um, but but the fact that they respond the way they did shows that they are not kind of beyond the moral. They they've not lost all all moral capacity or something. Well, well, it might do, but they evidently weren't oblivious to their sinful ways, were they? Because they responded. Oh, that's yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's the answer that they uh, yeah that they they didn't know, but when Jonah brought the message, they realised that um, it, it 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 rang bells with things that they that, that were in the back of their minds that they had kind of clouded over. Um, and so that, that might be a way of approaching your question with regard to an individual or, um, or a nation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, presumably because, um, uh, because Babylon is the superpower. Um, so... So that the kind of description, if you're, if you're the superpower, you do much more wrong than if you're an ordinary power. So the kind of judgments that, that's declared upon Assyria, uh, Babylon, uh, Rome in the New Testament is much worse than that is said about, say, the Moabites or something. Yes, and, and yeah, uh, that's true. Um, I'm just wondering whether there are I can't think of any promises like that about, about Babylon. Uh, yeah, that's true. Mm. 
Um, yeah. The, um, in the bottom bit of that page, uh, where it gives you the, um, the outline of 24 to 27, uh, there's this alternating between world devastation response, cosmic devastation response, world renewal and judgment response, world renewal and judgment. Um, several people commented on the, um, the oddness of the alternating. But I think it's worth seeing that that's, again, uh, a literary arrangement. Um, and, uh, but that it then reflects uh, or suggests a theological point. Um, particularly strange in, in a way is the way in which chapter 24, there's a response of joy to a vision of judgment, but also a response uh, of lament. Uh, and in one sense that's odd, but in another sense it's entirely appropriate. I think actually you'd get, you'd get the same in the book of Revelation, wouldn't you? Because when God acts in judgment upon an oppressor, it's both good news and bad news. It's good news because God is doing the right thing in relation to this wrongdoing. It's good news because God is delivering the people who have been oppressed. Uh, but it's bad news, it's horrible, because you see what's happening to the person who's on the receiving end of judgment. So that both a response of joy and a response of lament are appropriate to that kind of action. Um, the the punishing the host of heaven. Um, one or two people asked about uh, it's the, the uh, and and uh, the um, <coughs> the death of Leviathan. These are Old Testament ways of talking about powers of evil. Um, the when the Old Testament uses the word Satan, the word Satan. It's not talking about a power of evil. It's another example of these words that we use differently from the way the Old Testament uses them. But it's not that the Old Testament doesn't have, as it were, a figure like Satan. It's that the figure like Satan in the Old Testament is somebody called Leviathan. Uh, that the, the, uh, and you might think it's really rather um, insightful that they uh, picture the embodiment of power asserted against God and God's purpose um, as a monstrous animal. Uh, rather, n not something human, um, but something uh, monstrous. So uh, Leviathan is uh, the, an embo the embodiment of power asserted against God uh, that was, for instance, put down at the Exodus, but is clearly still at work in the world and will be destroyed at the end. Yeah. But is that not also how like, we think of it today, like as you know, Satan, I mean, just representing this, this power, this negativeness, this... Godly power that is kind of at work in the world. Is uh, that what yes. You yes. Okay. Exactly. That's my but point. You're, you're arguing that like we think of it differently today. Uh, what? Than the Old Testament did. The Old Testament doesn't talk about Satan. That when the Old Testament talks about uses the word Satan, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about Satan. Oh, what is it talking about? Uh, that's. Um, uh, it, it. Sorry, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't. Um, that, that's 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 writings. It's not prophets. Well. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a jurisdictional boundary here. We're in enough trouble as it is with the prophets. <laughs> I was going to say I was going to talk about the end, but I'm not because the end has arrived. Because it's ten to eight. 
So uh, now enjoy the next, this is the end, and I shall explain the theological significance of declaring it's the end in the second half. See you back in 20 minutes.